If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 3 and then skip down to verses 28 to 37. We spent a good portion of time in the middle section last week, but we want to look at the bookends this week of Daniel chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me and you can follow along there as we read it together. Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Picking up in verse 28. Then all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He is able to humble." This is God's Word. On June 24th, 2001, we were all captivated by a sight on the national news and perhaps many of the local news stations as well of a condo tower in Southside, Florida that collapsed. It crushed and crumbled to the ground. And in fact, to, to date, there's 98 individuals, 98 souls who lost their lives in the collapse of that condo tower on the south side of that building. And there's still many of the residents who are unaccounted for as they continue to scrape through the piles of debris. But one thing is clear, regardless of where the fault lies in the collapse of the tower, there was advance warning that came with regards to 
signs that they saw that things were not as they should be. In 2018, October of 2018, there was an engineering firm that was consulted and brought in to evaluate the condition of the structure as it moved towards its 40th anniversary in service and sought to be recertified by the city. And that independent consultant issued a nine-page report indicating that there was major structural damage and the integrity of the building was at risk. Fast forward a couple of years into 2020 and 2021, and there were more and more signs. In fact, in, by April of 2021, there was a projected cost of repairs that had ballooned to $16.2 million. And in a letter written ahead of the condo board's April 2021 meeting, the condo board president wrote, the concrete deterioration is accelerating rapidly. In May of 2021, just a month before the collapse of the structure, the condo board intensified their language to describe the desperate condition and needs of the building. Now, wherever you lay blame for the collapse of that condo tower, one thing is clear. That they had information that they refused or failed to act on. They had information that they failed to do anything with. Right? The building collapsed and lives were lost because they delayed taking action on information that they had received at some point two years, three years prior to the actual collapse of the building. Right? And that's one of the lessons that we can learn from that particular instance is that whenever we fail, when we refuse, when we delay, when we drag our feet in taking action on information that we have, it can have dangerous, even deadly consequences for us. And Nebuchadnezzar learns that lesson in our text this morning. He learns that lesson. See, Nebuchadnezzar had that same issue of refusing to act, not on information that he had received as if he was in some kind of classroom setting and he was being taught principles for life, but rather Nebuchadnezzar had received revelation from God. God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream and the interpretation of his prophet Daniel what was going to come to pass in his life if he continued to assert himself and to exalt himself and to live in his arrogance and his pride. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, he gave him a dream. And in that dream, there was a watcher from heaven who came down and there was a mighty tree that had grown in this dream. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this massive tree and then the branches of those tree, of that tree, all the birds of the field were able to, of the air were able to nest. And under the, under the canopy of that tree, all of the beasts of the field were able to find food and shelter from the sun. And the watcher says, cut it down. And that tree is cut down to the ground and there's nothing left but a stump there. And the stump is left and we're told it becomes very clear at that point in the middle of chapter 4 that what, what, the, what, the, what the author, what God's referring to in that dream is not some tree and not just the kingdom of Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar himself because it says that stump would have the mind of man removed from him and be given the mind of a beast, be given the mind of an animal and he would roam with the animals. He would sleep with the animals. He would eat with the animals. Right? And so God forecasts this to him in advance and tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, if you do not humble yourself, I will humble you. He forecasts that in advance and Nebuchadnezzar refuses to take any action. He refuses to respond, but he continues to harden himself. In fact, we're told in the text that we just read or, or, that 12 months after the dream, right? it must have seemed like, well, 
yeah, God said that, but really, is anything going to happen, right? Because 12 months, a whole year has passed, and there's still nothing happening. I'm still as powerful and as mighty and prestigious, and my namesake, is re- re- my renown and fame continues to go out to the corners of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar refuses to take God's revelation seriously and act on the basis of what has been revealed. And I dare say, church, this morning, that I have that same issue, and so do you. We all have that same issue. God has clearly revealed His will for our lives in His Word. I heard an old preacher say one time, he said, you only believe as much of the Bible as you obey. I think he's right. We have that same issue of refusing at times to act in response to what God has said, what He has revealed to us. And so this morning, what I want us to look at in this text is that if we are to act, if we are to take action on what God has said, there are two things that we've got to see and then one thing that we've got to do. And so I want to help us see those things and take that step this morning. The first thing you've got to see if you're going to take action on the basis of what God has revealed is you've got to come to see the deformity of sin. You've got to come to see the deformity of sin. In verse 28, we read these words, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. The beginning of verse 28, those those two words, all this. If you're just picking up the story here in verse 28, you might be asking yourself the question, what is all this? What is all this referring to? It's pointing back to everything that was forecasted in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had received from God. Everything that God had revealed to him. Everything that had been predicted. And look at several of the things that took place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. First of all, he lost his mind. Quite literally. He lost, he went mad. Okay, we're told in verse 16 that that his, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. So he lost his rational capacities, his ability to reason. He lost that. And he became like an animal wandering the face of the earth. Second of all, he lost his throne. In verse 32, we're told, the kingdom has departed from you, and then he was driven out from among men. In other words, I've taken away your ability to rule, and I've pushed you out of of human community and pushed you out into the fields. Third, Nebuchadnezzar lost his humanity. Here he is in verse 33, eating grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now listen, I've got a brother who went through a phase like that, okay? (laughs) He did, okay? His hair was long, he grew a big long beard, it was scraggly, right? He cut his nails like once every 18 months, he could climb trees with those things, okay? like a marsupial or whatever those things are okay right, he went through that phase but that's not what's going on here this is not just an unkept appearance but this is divine judgment from God in which his ability to reason his ability to rule and his function as a human being made in the image of God is debased and he's sent out into the fields to live like an animal like an animal but why Why does all this happen to the king? Why does his life become so misshapen and so deformed in this manner? And there's a simple one word answer. And we're familiar with this word in church. And it's called sin. It's sin, church. It's pride. 
which many would say is the root of all sin, right? It's pride, it's self-exaltation, it is arrogance, it's boasting in his accomplishments and his achievements. Look in verses 29 and 30, where we're told that 12 months after the dream, the king is leisurely strolling upon the roof of the royal palace, and he's looking out over the city of Babylon, the great city of Babylon, and all of his accomplishments, and he's boasting in them saying, is this Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look at the language. I have built this city. I built it by my mighty power, my innate abilities, my skill and wisdom. I built it for the glory of my majesty to show off my name, to show off my renown, and to show off my worth to all the world. Now listen, to be very clear, Babylon was a sight to behold in its day. It was like the New York City or L.A. or Tokyo or or, or, or uh, uh, Berlin or Paris or London, like a major metropolitan city in the ancient Near East. In fact, one commentator just describes its military fortifications. And listen to what he says. He says, Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat and then by an intricate system of double walls. The first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers at 60 foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double walled system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick. East of the Euphrates that ran an incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. In other words, it had a two-lane road on top. The height of the wall is not known exactly, but the Ishtar Gate, one of the gates there, was 40 feet high, and the walls would have approximated its height. A 40-foot wall would have been a formidable barrier for any enemy soldier. And this is just the military fortifications of the city, not to mention the palace, not to mention the temples, not to mention the residences and the businesses, that all, all the commerce that took place there in Babylon. It was a sight to behold. And yet, despite the dream, despite the forecasting, despite the prediction, despite all of this, in the interpretation by Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has yet to understand what we said last week, that God is God. And whenever you try to go toe-to-toe with Him, He will humble you. That's God alone that builds up and God alone that tears down. That He's the sovereign Lord over all human history. He's the ruler above all rulers. So before Nebuchadnezzar, listen, before he can even finish running his mouth, right? And running down all the list of accomplishments and all the things that he does, right? You can see him in mid-sentence and all of a sudden this voice booms out of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. And what does it say? You're done. Judgment is falling. Judgment's falling. And listen, from this experience you reread about in Nebuchadnezzar's life and God's interaction and discipline with him, listen, it's a drastic picture on a very grand scale, a very grand scale of the deformity brought about, the, about in the life of every human being given over to sin and to pride and to self-exaltation. 
whenever we assert ourselves against God and against His ways, against His will, against His word, and whenever there are prolonged patterns of sin in our life that we refuse to repent from, we refuse to deal with, we refuse to acknowledge, it has a crippling and deforming effect. So if we're ever going to take action, we've got to see sin for what it is, that it deforms us, church. It deforms us. Now, last week, we took a look at ways to recognize pride in your life. This week, I want us to take a look at two of the results. First of all, consider this, that pride, which is the essence underneath every unrepentant sin, that I'm going to have things my way and do things my way, it desensitizes us. It desensitizes us. There was an old Welsh evangelist in the 18 or 1700s who traveled from you know hamlet to hamlet and village to village and preaching. And as he traveled from place to place, he would meet the people and the residents and the business owners of those various cities. His name was John Elias, and he tells the story, a very vivid illustration of what was taking place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He recalls that as he was visiting one particular location, there was a blacksmith shop there. And the blacksmith had just bought a new dog. Okay, So he just bought a new dog, and the dog was laying there in the blacksmith shop along with him. And as you can imagine, a blacksmith shop is not a very tranquil, calm, quiet place. A blacksmith shop is full of furnaces and anvils and hammer and metal. Okay, And so as the blacksmith would put the metal into the fire and take it out and set it on the anvil he began to lay blow after blow after blow upon that metal and as he would begin to bang on that metal guess what the dog began to do anytime a dog hears a loud noise what does it do it it might how it howled or barked incessantly over and over and over and over there was just this incessant barking you would hear banging and barking and banging and barking and banging and barking coming out of the blacksmith's shop and so Elias thought nothing of it and as he traveled around from place to place he comes back eventually to that same little town and he visits the blacksmith's shop again and this time whenever he goes in the blacksmith's shop the barking had become less. And the next time he went to visit the blacksmith shop, the barking had become even less. Until the final time he goes to visit the blacksmith shop and the dog, while the blacksmith is pounding away on the metal, on the anvil, the dog is asleep by the fire. Because over the course of time, he had become desensitized to the sound of the hammer. He'd become desensitized to the blows that were being distributed. And listen, church, when you and I silence the voice of God through our resistance to the revealed will of God in the Scriptures and the conviction of our conscience by the Holy Spirit, whenever we silence that, it desensitizes us to the voice of God in our souls. You know this experience, just like I know this experience. Whenever you commit a certain sin and you refuse to repent and then you commit that and, and you experience like the conviction of God just like crushing you and yet you continue to walk in that. And then the next time you commit that sin, the, the conviction of God is a little less weighty on you, but you continue to walk in that sin. The next time it's a little less weighty and a little less weighty and a little less weighty until you can do that without your conscience being troubled at all. It desensitizes us to the Word of God. 
One commentator said it this way, said Nebuchadnezzar had grown accustomed to the hammering of the Word of God, ignoring it had rendered his conscience increasingly immune to its impact on his life as though God had never spoken to him at all. Now if you go back in the story and you go back into chapter 3, you see God gives Nebuchadnezzar another dream, doesn't He? About a large statue, about all the kingdoms that would come after His. And so God gives, more, God gives revelation. This is not a one-off event, right? God gives revelation to Nebuchadnezzar there, but Nebuchadnezzar bucks it once again previously by building a large statue made completely out of gold so that everyone would come and worship the statue that he has made so that he would secure his legacy, his lineage, and his namesake forever. There would be no after this for him. All right, so he exalts himself. There's a pattern in his life of exalting himself against what God has revealed. And as we do that more and more, it desensitizes us. So that if you hear a sermon on giving or you hear a sermon on purity or you hear a sermon on pride or on love, whatever it is, you hear a sermon on those things and the first time you hear it, man, God presses on your soul. The Spirit convicts you and you walk away and you go, I've got to do something about this, but you never act on the revelation that you receive. The next time you hear a sermon on that, that experience of conviction is a little less and a little less and a little less because we become desensitized to it. So that's the first thing that it does. It desensitizes us. But the second thing that it does, listen, church, is it dehumanizes us. Our pride and arrogance and self-exaltation and sin will always dehumanize us. Back in 2017, Disney released a live-action version of their classic Beauty and the Beast. right? And so uh, in that particular rendition of the story, you had this French prince who ruled a French kingdom long ago. He was a spoiled and selfish prince who lived in a castle and he would throw massive parties for his subjects and invite them in to come and eat and drink and, 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 and party with him. But one night at one of those parties, an old beggar woman shows up on his doorstep covered in her shroud with a stick in her hand and asks the prince if she could exchange shelter from the cold for this rose that she had in her hand. And the prince, his response was to sneer and to jeer and to laugh at this woman as she stood there in his presence because he had all of these beautiful people with him and here was this haggardly old woman. And so she warns him not to be deceived by appearances and yet he continues to reject her. And then... In this, in this, as the story goes, she transforms in his midst into this beautiful enchantress and she casts a spell upon him, right? So that his outside would look the same as his inside. She could sense no love in him, but only pride, only arrogance, only self-love. So she casts a spell and turns him into this hideous beast, Because she saw the arrogance and lack of love in his heart, she made his outside look like his inside. And listen, church, that's what sin will do in our lives every single time. It will dehumanize us. It will make us beastly. See, sin promises always to make us more human, but inevitably it always makes us less. You know that? See, in the garden, our first parents, they were promised. What were they promised? Right? You will be like God. Right? You'll be free. There'll be no constraints on your life. But whenever they eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes are open. They cover themselves. And now they're not free. They're in bondage. 
And that's been the story of humanity ever since. Right? And sin always promises more than it can deliver. And it always ends up dehumanizing us. Consider with me what lust does to a life. Through lust and pornography, it ends up turning men or women into objects instead of persons created in the image of God. Things to be consumed, not people to be loved and cared for and cherished. Right? It turns us into an animal. Anger, what anger, unchecked, unbridled, unrighteous anger does in a life. It turns you into an enraging beast. Right? When it, when you, and you begin to just devour people around you in your spheres. Consider what a lack of identity in Christ and finding your security in Him does. I can speak to this for a long time because I know it well. Right? But lack of identity and lack of security in Christ, what it turns us into oftentimes is a turtle. Okay? Because we, are, we just kind of pull our heads back in our shells and we hide from everyone because we're so afraid of what they're going to think about us, what they're going to say to us, or how they're going to respond to us. Right? And so we become paralyzed by the fear of man and we're like a turtle sitting at the bottom of the lake with our head tucked in because we're afraid of all the predators out there because our security doesn't come from Jesus, it comes from other people's opinions of us. I know I'm by myself this morning, but that's all right. Right? Think about other ways sin dehumanizes us. Laziness. Right? Laziness turns us into sloths. Okay? I think of the, the, the guy behind the desk on Zootopia who's just like slowly moving. That's what it turns us into. Right? Sin always dehumanizes. It always strips away our dignity. It always strips away our humanity. And makes us like an ox grazing on grass, having lost our minds and our position as rulers, vice regents of all creation that God established in the garden. That's what sin does. You've got to see its deformity, church. You've got to see its deformity. So if you do, what do you do about it? What do you do about it? Listen, if you, as you've learned to see its deformity, we also must learn to live a life of repentance. Live a life of repentance. Now listen, repentance is not just what we do whenever we come to faith in Jesus. It's not just what we do at our conversion, right? Though it's necessary for conversion. Listen, nobody comes to Jesus and merely grabs a hold of Jesus as if he's some kind of insurance policy that's going to keep us from burning in the fires of hell. Okay, that's, that's not salvation. Okay, that's not conversion. That's not regeneration. That's not justification, sanctification, and glorification. As if we can grab a hold of Jesus, have a ticket to heaven, and then continue to rebel against God all the days of our lives and run and rule our own lives apart from Him. That is not salvation. That is not conversion. Rather, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. But whenever you place your confidence in Jesus, you grab, take hold of Him by faith. Right? It also means simultaneously you're taking hold of Him and you're letting go of something else. Right? So if you're going to embrace Jesus and take hold of Him by faith, you've got to let go of your self-salvation project. You've got to let go of all of your accomplishments and achievements. You've got to let go of all the things that you think are going to give you right standing before God in order to grab a hold of Jesus and Jesus alone by faith. To taste of His grace. That's repentance. 
right? Letting go, turning away from all these other ways of trying to find fulfillment, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find meaning and purpose in life, trying to make yourself presentable before God and going, I cannot do it. He has done it. I take hold of Him. I'm repenting of that. With me? That's repent. That's, so conversion involves repentance. But listen, the Christian life does as well. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it involves repentance. All right? Here's why. Because most of us think, well, you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. You should be perfect by now. Right? That's the assumption that most of us have. But listen, here's what I found. Is that with the most seasoned saints, yes, there is progressive sanctification as they begin to be conformed to the image of Christ in their life. Because they've had more time, right? The hammer's been laid on the anvil, on the iron, more. But, one of the things that the most seasoned saints that I've admired throughout my life have developed over the course of that time is not only a greater freedom from sin, but a greater awareness of the depth of their own sin. Right? Because you, you can reform behavior pretty quickly. Right? But the transformation of heart and of character and the development of virtue, that comes over time. And one of the things of walking with Jesus day after day that you begin to discover is not, hey, I am perfect, but I realize more fully my imperfections. And more deeply my need for grace. This is why the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's not a one-time thing that you do at conversion, though it's necessary for conversion. It's a daily, habitual practice that we engage in the long, as so long as we live. And listen, repentance, as it's seen here in the life of the Babylonian king, it involves at least these four pieces. I almost gave you three, but there's four. Okay? At least these four pieces. First of all, it involves the acknowledgement of the goodness of God. I'm not, not goodness, I'm sorry. I wanted to say that because that's what word kept correcting it to in my document. Acknowledging the godness of God. The godness of God. The goodness of God is something good to acknowledge as well. But the godness of God. In verse 34, we read, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Now notice the contrast at the beginning of the text where the king's eyes were looking. At the beginning of the text, he's walking on the royal palace and he's looking out and beholding everything that he's done. His eyes are fixated on all of his accomplishments and achievements. Right? He's filling himself with pride. But here in the text, where are his eyes looking? They're not looking outward, they're looking upward recognizing that He is under the authority of God, that God is God and He is not. And listen, true repentance always starts with that acknowledgement. It always starts with that acknowledgement because you're not going to turn from something to God unless you see that He is the great King that rules over all of our lives and over all of your life. That He is God and you are not. So as soon as He's put in His rightful place, Repentance can take place. Acknowledging the godness of God. Second of all, recognizing the creatureliness of man. Recognizing just how creaturely we are. In verse 35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. 
and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, it's, it's kind of like at the end of the book of Job. Right? I, I love, every time I'm wrestling through a season of suffering or turmoil or hardship, where, where, I mean, where else do you go but Job, right? Uh, there's other places to go. That's a good one. And at the end of the book of Job, after everything has, Job's experienced everything that he's experienced in his life, after he loses his family, after his wife says, listen, why don't you, I'll, I'll sensitize it, right? Why don't you curse God and die? That's the language of the text, right? Why don't you curse God and die? His wife says, abandon God and just give up on life. Right? He gets sick and boils all over his body. His three friends try to give him counsel and say, Job, Job you must have done something to make him mad. Right? Over and over and over again. And then finally, God is silent the whole time. Job's petitioning. And then finally when God speaks at the end of the book, at the end of the book, He says this, Job, put your pants on all right, so I can address you like a man and stand before me. And he says, Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the world? Where were you when I separated the waters below from the waters above? Job, where were you when I made all the creatures that fill the earth, the mountain goats on the highest peaks, and the anglerfish in the deepest depths? Job, where were you? Answer me. In other words, God's saying to Job, Job, listen, I am God, you are not. I am king, you are a citizen of my kingdom. I'm the creator, you are creation, you're a creature made in my image, yes, to rule over the earth, but I rule over you and you're merely a creature. You don't have the wisdom, Job, that I have. You didn't, in fact, he says that at one, at one place, he's like, Job, were you there with me? Did, did I seek your counsel? When I made the world, Job? And of course the answer is no. It's the exact same thing Nebuchadnezzar says here. In this confession, in his repentance of saying, listen, I am but a man. But a creature that God has made. And He does as He wills with the inhabitants of the earth, including me. And no one, I love it, no one can stay His hand. When He decides to act, there is not a single person on the face of the earth through whatever political legislation or whatever personal power they may have that's going to hold God's hand back from grabbing a hold of what He's reaching for. No one can stay His hand. And no one can call Him into question. The creatureliness of man. Third, confess the righteousness of God. Listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37. For all his works are right and his ways are just. Listen, true repentance involves a confession of God's righteousness that no charges can be brought against him. That everything that he does, everything that he does is right and just and true. Because he can never act contradictory to his character. So confessing the righteousness of God and then finally forth, worshiping the greatness of God. Which Nebuchadnezzar does in the text. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol in verse 37 and honor the King of heaven. True repentance involves all these things, church. 
True repentance is not saying, I feel bad about what I've done, and so Jesus, would you make my guilt go away? True repentance is not saying, I'm scared that I'm going to hell. Jesus, would you give me a ticket to heaven? True repentance is acknowledging that God is God. I am not. I'm but a creature who's been formed in His image. That everything that He does is right and just and true. And so He is deserving of all of my worship, all of my praise, all of my adoration, all of my affection, all of my loyalty, and all of my love. That's true repentance. You see it exercised here in his life. But it flows out of this statement in the text that at the end of days, in other words, when those periods of time had come to an end, he says, I lifted my eyes to heaven. And whenever Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven, church, what did he see? What did he see? This is the second thing you and I have got to see if we're going to act on God's revelation in our life and repent and turn from sin so that the deformity can be unraveled and we can be human again. Created in God's image, he saw the beauty of a merciful God. He saw the beauty of a merciful God. Listen, in verses 1 to 3, they are not the conclusion to chapter 3. Some commentators hold that view, that verses 1 to 3 are the conclusion of chapter 3, that, God, that Nebuchadnezzar sees the rescue of these three Hebrew men from the fiery furnace, and he says, man, that was amazing. But that's not how they function in this text. They are the introduction to chapter 4. You know, in the, in, the, in the movie world, there is a phrase called in medias res. It's a Latin term meaning in the midst of things. Okay, and what it describes is when a story, like a movie, and the first scene of the movie is whenever it picks up like at the climax of the movie. Okay, or sometimes, sometimes the climax is the end of the movie. And then you see like a scene five minutes long of this climactic point in the, in the story, and then the, it shifts back to the beginning. And then as it goes through the story, all of a sudden all the details now have new meaning to you because you know what's coming. Right? You're anticipating what's coming. And I think that's what's happening here in this text is he's introducing it in verses 1 to 3 because he says these words, listen. In verse 2 he says, It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He doesn't say, it seemed good to me to show all the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for these three Hebrew young men, or for Daniel, or for his companions, or for the Jewish people. He says, done for me. But he doesn't say to me. He says for me. Because when Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven, he doesn't say, let me tell you about all the things I've seen God do for other people. He says, let me tell you about the things I saw God do for me. And then he comes to the end of verse 37, the end of the story, and it says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the King of heaven, for all His works are right and His ways are just. And what? And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. What has God done for Nebuchadnezzar? He has humbled him. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't say, He did this to me. He says, He did it for me. He did it for me. As an expression of His mercy. Because what God could have done what God could have done is snuffed him out like the wick of a candle. 
What God could have done is left him in his beastliness to roam the fields of the earth until the day that he breathed his last breath. What God could have done was not been merciful. But he says instead, until you know that God reigns. That's the resounding refrain of this chapter. Until you know that God is God. Until you know that God is God. In other words, there's a day that's coming which you're going to recognize that because I'm going to withhold my judgment upon you. I'm not going to snuff you out, but I'm going to humble you and then raise you back up, Nebuchadnezzar. And that's exactly what God does. And Nebuchadnezzar says, He's done it for me. Listen, church, how many of you would have that same testimony? What God has done for you. That through your sin, through your pride, through your self-exaltation, through your arrogance, through saying, I'm going to do things my way. Right? Singing Sinatra all the day long. Right? That God has done something for you. He's humbled you through circumstances in life, through broken relationships. That He's humbled you through a financial collapse. That He's humbled you in various ways and means that God has at His disposal. And you don't look back on that and question God, why would you take that away from me? Or God, why would you bring that upon me? But you look back and you say, this is what He's done for me. This is what he's done for me. Because when Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes, he sees the beauty, the merciful God that humbles him. You know, at the end of The Beauty and the Beast, in that 2017 film, right, the Beast and Belle, right, they meet and they fall in love and they, right, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a love story, romantic story, but there's a beautiful piece to it because here's what happens See, the beast, the beast can only have the curse removed from his life once he is humbled by the love of the beauty who loves him for what she sees. Who loves him as he is. Because she sees the fur, she sees the fangs, she sees the claws. She sees all of that. And yet she loves Him. And listen, church, you and I have a God who has seen all the beastliness in us. He's seen it. He's seen the anger. He's seen the lust. He has seen the insecurities that we wrestle with. He has seen the pride. He has seen the gluttony and the greed. He has seen all of those things that would deform and misshape and twist our lives. And yet, in it all, in the same way that He pursued Nebuchadnezzar, He has pursued you and I. And the way that He's pursued you and I was by sending the bell of heaven. The most beautiful the most majestic, the very second person of the triune God. He's pursued us through His Son, Jesus, and He chased us all the way to the cross. He came after us in our sin. That your pride didn't deter Him. That your lust didn't deter Him. That your addiction to pornography didn't deter Him. 
that your greed and financial collapse didn't deter him. In fact, he was working through some of those things to bring you to a place of humiliation so that you would be humbled and that you would look up and you would see his son crucified in your place on the cross and know that this God loves you. If we're going to take action, we've got to see the deformity of sin and we have to see the beauty of a merciful God. This morning, church, if you're here today with us, you've never seen that beauty. Maybe you have felt the guilt. Maybe you have felt the shame of the deformity of sin in your life, but you've never seen the beauty of Jesus. We want to invite you to Him this morning. And I want you to know that when He stretched His arms out on the cross, He stretched them out to embrace all who would come to Him in faith. That if you would let go of whatever it is that you're trying to hold on to to say, I'm in control, I'm going to run my life, I'm going to show him how I can impress him. If you would let go of all of that, he'd be willing to embrace you, lavish his grace upon you, and make you his son and daughter. And if that's you this morning, there's a, a card in the seat there you can check. It says, I want to know more about following Jesus. You can stop by the booth back there. I'll be there at the end of our service. I would love to pray with you, talk with you, set up time to sit down and talk in depth with you about what it means to follow Jesus. And listen, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, and I can speak personally to this because I've experienced it in my own life, and God has been hammering away at an area of your heart, and you have resisted and pulled back, and shut him out, and that desensitization has taken place. I want you to know God brought you here this morning for a purpose, is to expose that so that he can begin to unravel the deformity that sin's caused in your life. Would you take a step of repentance this morning? Say, he is God, I am not. He is right in all of his ways and works, and I bow at his feet. Now help me put things back together. And he will. At the end of his days, Nebuchadnezzar, just like Job, right, received more than he had before. And I want to tell you, God is able to restore, as I said last week, whatever years that the locusts have eaten in your life. Let's pray together. Father, today, while it is still called today,